Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a broadcaster, biographer and historian with a long career working on some of the UK's most respected news shows. Career highlights include his award-winning coverage of the 1973 Ethiopian famine and his 1994 interview with Prince Charles, in which the prince confessed being unfaithful in his relationship with Diana. He's written, co-produced and presented documentaries on the Cold War, Churchill and Hong Kong, amongst many others. He presented BBC Radio 4's Any Questions until 2019, also a prolific history writer. His works include The Battle of the Atlantic, How the Allies Won the War, and Destiny in the Desert, The Road to El Alamein. His latest book is Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War, a detailed account of the Nazis' calamitous invasion of the Soviet Union and the political and military decision-making that shaped it. Jonathan Dimbleby, welcome to Meet the Writers. It's very nice to be with you. Of course. So far. (laughs) (laughs) You come from such an illustrious family. You are the son of of Richard Dimbleby, who was a BBC correspondent in World War II, and also the brother of David, a TV and radio presenter. So what was the atmosphere growing up at home, given that you all had these similar interests? It was very bucolic. We lived in the country. I loved all the country life that we had. My father crunched up the drive away from us to go to work and he didn't bring it home so he didn't really talk about it very much so I lived a life with a few farm animals ponies and the rest but of course I was aware of his enormous position in then in in British and in global public life because of the second world war and because of all the things that he did afterwards he was a mega figure and when he died when I was 21 he died of cancer young Westminster Abbey had a huge service broadcast by all the television companies that existed, too, in the United Kingdom then, but also in in the United States, huge crowds outside mourning his early departure. So that, you could not but be aware of that. I tried, however, initially to steer away from it, not only because I thought, you know, this is a very big tree under which to try and uh, shelter, but also my brother, David, had gone in and I thought, you know, this... It isn't that big a field. <laughs> we could start knocking each other about by mistake or deliberately. We didn't. In the end, I thought, I've got to give broadcasting a go to see if I can do it. Now, I don't go along with the fact that it's genetic, but I do go along with the fact that you do inherit certain characteristics from the way in which your father behaves. And I have always been aware of how would my father have behaved in these circumstances, mm. even up to today. I wonder if it was difficult sharing him, uh, particularly at the time of his death, when you have this, as you say, huge public outpouring of grief for this national treasure. But of course, he was your dad. He was my dad. And, you know, I found it very disconcerting when I was younger. I lived in the country, as I say, but we would go up to London to a pantomime in the winter. And I remember being in a theatre and a famous British comedian called Arthur Askey was playing the dame in the pantomime and suddenly I was sitting beside my pa and suddenly the spotlight came on him I crouched right down and Askey said one of our great figures is here today Richard Dimbleby and my pa had to stand up at which the audience all rose in applause that he was there I 
loathed it. I wouldn't... He had a big car because he, he was very successful. He had a Rolls-Royce. His, his excuse for having a Rolls-Royce was because he was driving around Europe. A lot of driving then was that he was, as it were, the BBC's ambassador in Europe. So he needed a big car. Actually, he liked it. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't let him come to my school in it. They had an old Ford console and they had to come to my school in the old Ford console. Cause I, people would say to me as a child... Just because you're your father's son, dot, 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 it doesn't mean that. So I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. But I sort of thought, I just got very engaged in politics and current affairs at, at university, and I thought, I've got to give it a go. Although, of course, you started by studying farm management. Yeah, farming has remained a passion all my life. I don't now farm. I did. I got a farm, and I went farming, and I was an organic farmer. I became president of the organic movement in this country, and I still believe that if we want sustainable future, we have to look after the soil in a way that organic farming does very effectively. Otherwise, we will have, you know, we've got climate change and God knows, environmental crises. You have to look after the soil and that's at the root of the organic principles. And I believe it. You can probably hear in the way which I talk about these things. I believe that very strongly. Yeah. Well, of course, and that's something that you are at one with Prince Charles. And he, of course, is one of the people that you've written a book about. You've been lifelong friends. I just wonder very quickly if, if you might talk about the Queen's speech. We're recording this the day after that speech, in which the government really did seem to be pulling back from some of its environmental commitments. We know Prince Charles, like you, is absolutely dedicated to those causes. And yet there he was reading this speech. And I wonder what your take on that would be. Prince Wales, as everyone knows, is a great environmentalist. He's been a huge and important figure around the world. And he will never not hold those views. However, at the same time, he is steeped in the British Constitution. He knows the role of the sovereign is not to say, when they say, my government is going to do this, that and the other, that somehow he's authorise that. He knows that he is merely reading out in the tradition of the British parliamentary system that he's reading that out. What his private views may be about that and whether they conflict with what he said about that is quite separate for him. As representative of the Queen, he has to be exactly as the Queen would have been. And I think he he did it. I've got a picture of it in, in front of me here. And he, you know, he's actually, the picture's got him tight-lipped, but I think that's just one of those photographs of this court <laughs> at that moment rather than meant to say anything. You, of course, wrote another book about a, a different representative of the Queen, uh, The Last Governor, and that's about Chris Patton and, and Hong Kong. Uh, I know, again, that you and Patton are, are friends, and in fact he has his own book about that time coming out very soon. I was talking about it with him yesterday evening. And, of course, we look at Hong Kong now and everything that's, huh. that's changed. And I just wonder what you take from, from your book and the comparison to today. You know, I've just been asked to write a short piece for an outlet in Hong Kong, My Memories of the Handover. And I had then bittersweet memories. And I, I'm going to reply before I say, saying, I will write the piece so long as, if you don't have it as I want it, I don't mind words being edited, if you don't have the core message mm. in it printed and you can't undertake to do that, I'm afraid then I would draw the, the article. It's the only terms in which I'll do it, which I have to do. I am absolutely horrified by what has happened to Hong Kong, to the freedoms of Hong Kong. And I've met people who were friends of mine, and I know people who've been, who are friends of mine, who, who 
were Democrats, believed in freedom, believed in the principles of parliament and were prepared, perfectly prepared to say that Hong Kong could not be separate from China, who've been locked up, who've been silenced, who've had to emigrate. And I've got other people who I regarded as friends who, for some reason, have gone along with it because they're living a comfortable life in Hong Kong. They are saying, yeah, well, it's not that bad, really. You know, the Western media exaggerates what is happening. How do you exaggerate a law which makes it a criminal offence subject to a long life in prison for speaking your mind freely, for demonstrating in the street in a perfectly proper way that any democracy accomplishes. I am horrified and dismayed by it and deeply depressed by it because Hong Kong, you know, it had lots of problems, lots of challenges. It's an extraordinarily was a vibrant place and this is killing the life of Hong Kong as I regard it to be. And of course you've reported on matters like this for years. You started uh, at uh, BBC Bristol on The World at One. You presented The World this weekend, as we said, and uh, you were with ITV for, for this week. Uh, your coverage of the Ethiopian famine was really a big change in broadcasting here because suddenly we were seeing in detail what was going on and it, it sparked a great outpouring of giving which, which helped in, in that famine tremendously. It did. I, I sort of stumbled upon it. And I had this mixture, as I think any journalist is likely to have. No one else seemed to know about it outside. One or two people knew about it in the United Nations, but no media knew about it. So I felt, on the one hand, the horror. You know, little babies and children stacked with their weeping mothers beside them, starving, dead huge numbers. On the other hand, I was thinking, I've got a scoop here. It was used, the film, to my dismay by the incoming regime who got rid of Haile Selassie to demonstrate that he was indifferent and, and a cruel figure, whereas in fact he was in total ignorance of what was going on because his acolytes in the region of the famine had thought they shouldn't tell him. Mm. But the whole of, in my own sense of, of journalism, the, the fact that I've been able to travel the world and make documentaries and films and reports, often from places where things are going badly wrong, but not always, or where things are intriguing because they could go wrong, that is what led me really into becoming more and more interested in history. So this is the snapshot. How did we get to here? And I always was interested in that. And that's exactly what you've done with this new book, which is absolutely fascinating. So basically, we're at the 80th, we're just after the 80th anniversary of, of Nazi Germany's fateful invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. And that's the starting point for your book. This is Operation Barbarossa. And the 22nd of June 1941 was the, the key date in which Germany <coughs> invaded the Soviet Union. But if we go back, where do the roots of this start? Well, in summary, you have to remember that on continental Europe, and from Britain we look at this and always have done, as a power that ruled the waves, but was only interested in Europe when things went wrong. Two great behemoths, two giant powers, Germany and Russia, which had become the Soviet Union, obviously, after the First World War. Two powers. Germany, industrial might, far greater than any other continental European country. Russia, the source of massive economic wealth in raw materials and a population of 
more than twice the size of Germany's population, the biggest population in Europe. Two great powers that historically had always competed. It didn't take much for them to be in conflict once again, as they had been in the past, in the First World War. And the consequences of the First World War, the humiliation of Germany, the feeling of the need for space that had been punished in Germany, led to the rise of Hitler. Rise of Hitler means that, to start with, he thinks he'd always wanted to go into the Soviet Union. Get rid of in Eastern Europe, get rid of the Jews out of Europe. If you can't get rid of them by any other means, exterminate them physically. Get rid of Bolshevism. The ideological aversion was profound. And create, quotes, Lebensraum, space. And that Lebensraum was going to be principally in Ukraine, rich in fertile soil, rich with Odessa and beautiful southern coast, rich in mineral resource and rich in industrial activity, potentially. Um, the playground it was going to be of, of he saw them as, as peasant soldiers who would settle there to give more in that Lebensraum territory. The invasion was based on the assumption they would have a quick victory. It was the hugest invasion in all history. No, there's never been an invasion involving three and a half million Axis soldiers to compare with it in history, and there almost certainly never will be on that scale in future. And everyone thought it'd be over in a few weeks. The West thought it was. London, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, they thought it'd be over very quickly. And it wasn't because the Russians fought, and they fought and they lost huge numbers of soldiers in that fighting. And by the time you get to Moscow at the end of, the, at the end of 1941, to me and I think to, to many others now, it is clear that that had exhausted the German potential to win. Yes, they had Stalingrad after, huge psychological defeat, but they were already overreaching. Soviet Union was getting more and more powerful. Germany was getting relatively weaker and weaker. So that defeat... Simply the, the nails in the coffin were put in in 1944, at which point Stalin had become the most powerful figure in Europe. And the Western Allies had to cope with that mammoth power of the Soviet Union to go as far west, effectively, in Europe as they wanted to go. And that was pretty unnerving. Could you deal and make sure that by our own activities from the West you could arrest the Soviet advance. In fact, I believe that the Soviet Union did not want to go any further west than the territory they'd chewed up and taken in Central Europe, Poland mm. and so on. In the book, it's fascinating. I mean, you go into such detail. You have diaries and letters. You have uh, various documents translated from Russian which have never been seen before. And one of the shocking things that that reveals is the, the extent of the hatred and the brutality, mm. the way that, that Germans viewed Slavs and Jews really as subhuman. It is the, the untermenschen. They regarded Slavs, which meant, and this is very important from today's perspective, they regarded all Slavs, including Russians, as subhuman, a subhuman category. They were beneath contempt. They were barbaric by nature. And the loathing that they had for the Jews was also a loathing for the Slavs. So the murder of Slavs, I mean, the Jews were killed appallingly, alongside Slavs. Before that war, there was organised economic policy to secure the wealth of Ukraine and also parts of Western Russia, and it was called the Hunger Plan. The Hunger Plan officially involved the death of 30 million Slavs. 30 million. That would be the price of 
securing the wealth of Ukraine and Western Russia for Germany, for the, uh, the, the, the German Third Reich. And it wasn't only the, the ideologues who held that view. It was the policy that the German generals in the Wehrmacht knew about and actually made clear that there should be no pity shown to the Slavs because they didn't matter. And a lot of the letters, as you touch on, they demonstrate that contempt for them, total contempt. It's really horrifying to read, actually, those German letters. And they're abundant. And, of course, Germany <laughs> is a totally, totally different place in its attitudes because people change. In lots of ways, Russia has in terms of its attitude towards what happened after the war uh, and what happened to Russia during the war is deeply entrenched in the, in the psyche. Mm. I want to look at Baba Yar just outside Kiev because really this was the beginning of the Holocaust. We think of the Holocaust as, as gas chambers and happening in, later on in, in the 1940s, but in fact it was back then. The, the Holocaust began very early. And to start with, on the face of it, it was just those who were opposing the invasion, the occupation of, of the Nazis, or those who were regarded as commissars or subversive in some way or another, partisans. And it became a series of murder squads. They were called the Einsatzgruppen. They were quite educated people very often in command, university graduates, doctors, and so forth, lawyers. And they rounded up, increasingly rounding up Jews from, from actually from the summer of 1941, removing their clothes and any possessions they had, lining them up at pits, including babies and children, and shooting them in their thousands. Babi Yar was the most terribly large example, but there were scores, hundreds of similar events. By the end of 1941, at least a million and a half Jews were killed of the six million or so Jews and some others who were killed in the course of the war by the Nazis. And the German high command was complicit in that action. A lot of the states in between, including Ukraine, Poland, the Baltic states, a lot of them were complicit in that combination of pogrom and murder. And the Russians were very careful Kremlin was very careful. They, although there were some, a lot of exclusively Jewish massacres and murders, you were not permitted, if you were a Soviet journalist, anyone representing someone, to distinguish between Jews and Slavs. They were just all, when it was in Russia, all, all Russian or Soviet citizens. They didn't want to differentiate Jews and Slavs because that would break the cohesion of the, of the socialist state. But the... The horrors perpetrated went very deep into Russian sense of the way in which the West or those countries had shared in a uh, in a in a Holocaust that led in. I mean, in the Second World War as a whole, there were something in the order of twenty nine million Soviet deaths. Twenty nine million. The maximum casualties that the West had were two million, two hundred times as many. Soviet citizens, citizens, not military, 200 times as many at least died in what they call the Great Patriotic War as died in the United Kingdom through the air raids. 
you know, there were many two deaths in England, don't misunderstand, in Britain, don't misunderstand me, but the scale of suffering in the Second World War is something that is so deeply embedded. You know, I travelled on a separate end right the way through Russia, a sort of 12,000-mile journey making documentaries and writing a book about it. And wherever I went, for, my first visit was in the 1970s, and my most recent visit was in the 2000s when I wrote this book and did that journey. One thing was constant. There have been lots of changes, of course. One thing was constant. The sense of resentment and frustration that the West had never acknowledged adequately the contribution that the Soviet Union had made to the destruction of Hitler. And the war was actually won in the East, not in the West. I want to pick up on something you said about the people perpetrating these awful massacres, because you said they were professionals, they were doctors, they were lawyers. Were they also volunteers? I mean, controversially, can we then say that Russia might have a point when they say they want to wipe out Bolshevism and, and so on within Ukraine, because these were Ukrainians who were voluntarily perpetrating these appalling acts? What, wanting to, to, to destroy fascism. Uh, I, I beg yeah, your pardon, yeah. fascism. Um, Putin is extremely skillful. He is committing a monstrous crime in Ukraine. Get that mm. established. Historically, Ukrainians in large measure supported, not universally by any means, there were, there were many Ukrainians who fought with the Red Army. Remember, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, but a significant proportion having a sense of their search for a national identity, which had been long there but always very weak, who supported fascistic, extreme nationalist, anti-Semitic leaders. And they never went away. They became immensely diminished. In the, in the Ukrainian parliament, they were a tiny proportion. But psychologically, in Russia, they still remain potent. Ukraine is not a fully... Uh, functioning democracy yet. It's on the way there. It's got the form, but there's still a, there was a lot to be done before it could become a member of the EU, which incidentally I hope will be possible. And I can't see why it shouldn't be, because there are other members of the EU <laughs> equally inadequate in, in, in terms of the standards that we ought to be applying mm. to democratic institutions. However, there was one figure who was the, above all others, represented that extreme nationalism, and he was called Stefan Bandera, in one of those great, great, one of those awful, rambling, ahistorical speeches, Putin said, we've got to get rid of the Bandera fascists. Now, most people wouldn't have understood what Bandera was. A lot of people in Russia would, because Bandera led in his name this army fort, and they massacred in very large numbers. And they continued to exist in what became called the Azov Battalion. Bandera is lionised in lots of Ukrainian cities, most notably in Lviv, where, and there are statues to him. And that has been deeply resented. It's, Bandera is regarded by the Israelis and by the EU uh, historically as a terrorist, and he was a mega-terrorist. So I think those sort of things... Putin can use all of that. In se he uses two things in selling... In selling his outrage in Ukraine to the, to the Russian people. He uses the spread eastwards of NATO after the end of the, of, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he uses the, quotes fascist threat. Neither of those, to me, seem valid, but they're very potent, particularly in a Russian psyche where 
they've always been fearful of invasion, where the Second World War resonates enormously and where the feeling that that NATO is a threat has been sedulously taught for at least 30 years, 40 years. You know, every time I went, there are maps, there are videos showing how NATO is in is about to invade Russia. None of it, in my view, is true. But that's not the point. It's how he, I think it's what Putin, I'm not sure whether he believes it, but he can certainly sell it quite effectively, which is why so many people in Russia support what has happened. And my own feeling is that it'll have to be a lot of body bags going back there before, as with Afghanistan, people say, hang about, what is going on here? So looking at history, the fact that really Germany did lose the war at that crucial time in 1941, although obviously it it rumbled on, looking at that and looking at the Russian response to it and then overlaying it with the events of today, how would you predict the outcome in Ukraine? What is certainly the case is it is very unwise for Western leaders to talk about victory in Ukraine driving the Russians out of Ukraine, restoring the territory of Ukraine. They should be saying, we support Ukraine, we'll continue to support Ukraine. But I hope that that more mature diplomacy is happening where there is a real-world conversation. The Russians will not leave Crimea. They will not leave eastern Ukraine. That's a fact. So what has to be, I think, negotiated in some way and it's going to take a long time, is a sort of ceasefire, armistice, that it's clear that the mood language has to be Ukraine is not going to join NATO, which is half said already, should certainly be free to join the EU. What you can't do is to keep talking up victory in ways that are deeply misleading and actually quite dangerous. I think that some of the language being used by British politicians, I think, I think Liz Trust should uh, have a downer in her tequila, as it were, um, before she makes policy pronouncements. It's as if they're upping the ante. It's not the task. You don't defend democracy and freedom as is the role of NATO, as is the role of the British government, by holding out for an extreme solution which will contribute towards extreme attitudes on the other side. The borders of of Europe have shifted historically all the time. That is not to say they should shift, but there are realities. And the realities of really good statesmen are to explore what is possible, what the Ukrainians would accept in reality. We talk about Ukraine as though the decision is entirely for the Ukrainians. In a way, I wish that were true, but it's not true because without... United States, most of all, but also NATO, that war would not be possible. So there is a big voice for the West. The body of Ukraine has to be protected. But if you think, and I hate saying this because I loathe what is being done, you know, the the war crimes being committed. But if you think that Lviv has been a city that's been in other European hands, it's been in the hands of empires. It was Polish before the war. Poles fought very hard with Churchill to try and maintain Lviv as part of Poland. And it was Churchill who said, no, no, and Roosevelt who said, no, with with Stalin, Lviv is going to be part of Ukraine. So you've got these huge convulsions in the east 
that have been there all the time and they have to be solved in the end by diplomacy, not by merely shouting the odds. And it's only really by understanding our past that we can understand what happens in the future. And you do that brilliantly in this book, Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. It's out in paperback now. It's a Sunday Times bestseller and it's by the wonderful Jonathan Dumbleby. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett and our studio manager, Chrissa Blackwell. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.